those who are of his creation. He wants that for all those who become his children. I want to show you what I mean. You've heard this verse before. You've probably studied the passage. You've probably heard it in sermons because it's very familiar in Romans 12. Now, what precedes this passage is a very seemingly simple, to the Apostle Paul, explanation of a very complex and even, as he describes it, a little bit of a mysterious truth. That God, in his desire to bring salvation to the world through Jesus, allowed things to take place in the Jews that would precipitate the gospel being preached to the Gentiles. God did not write off the Jews, but he did allow them to become hardened to the truth for a time and even to wallow in their disobedience until such a time as his plan would be fulfilled. And all of this, according to the scripture, so that his mercy could be seen. As Paul's wrapping up this explanation in chapter 11, he says this concerning God. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is lifting up this exaltation of who God is in who God is. And he is expecting those that are starting to understand how he worked through this nation, this people group, to bring about Jesus and salvation to all the other nations and all the other people groups and, and how he worked in those things and did those things. And it's, it's, it's unfathomable. It's, it's impossible to, 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 to meander through all of it and connect everything together. And some of it even, even is still a little bit mysterious. But it's because God is all. Which then leads Paul into chapter 12. And he says this, therefore, as a result of all these things, as this term of conclusion, as this understanding that God is all of these things, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there's a lot that could be mined out here related to the sacrificial system and the call that was going forth there. There's also a lot that could be said about the words conformed and transformed, powerful words, 
and what is being called for there. But we're going to focus just on three words for a few minutes. And that's the words good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, a lot has been done regarding the will of God, right? I mean, I've seen things that has, have broken the will of God into 47 different pieces. I mean, the will of God is this and this and this and this, and it's perfect and permissible and half the time okay and wonderful. And I mean, all kind of configurations that people will go about in looking at the will of God. And some have done that even here with this passage. And they take these three words and they, they try to ascribe to these three words ways that we can understand the will of God. Like, for instance, it's his good will. It's his acceptable will. It's his purpose. It's his perfect will, as if they are somehow different. Now, I don't ascribe to that thinking because I think if you, you look at it, it, it could actually lead to thinking that there could be good things that are God's will that are not necessarily acceptable things to God. And, or, or there could be acceptable things to God, on the other hand, that might not be good things. I mean, if you're breaking it into categories, you can take each one, right? But I believe that, as, as Paul so often does in his writings, he's actually building here. Much like he did in Romans 5. This is, this is what, how he did it in Romans 5. And, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring, bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through his Holy Spirit who he's given to us. He builds on each one. So in doing that here, he's actually building towards something as well regarding the will of God. Because there, there are many people who will do good things. There are many, many organizations that will do good things. And, and those things could even be considered good in the eyes of God. For instance, helping widows and orphans. If you started something to help widows and orphans, right? That is something that is pleasing to God. That is something that is good in the eyes of God because in James 1, he, he calls that pure and undefiled religion, right? And yet, and yet, if it's done with impure motives, like making money, I'm going to start an organization to help widows and orphans because there's a lot of money in widows and orphans, right? I mean... Or maybe it's to have power and influence so as to control. You know, the easiest people to control are widows and orphans, and I, and I, I like having power over people, right? They, those things would not be in the category of acceptable to God. Agreed? He, he actually treats them pretty harshly if someone were to do that specifically with widows and orphans. Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Seems like God has a position on that as well. The good done must be acceptable to God to be pleasing to him. Then there's the addition of the word perfect. It means full. It means complete. It means finished. It means wanting nothing. 
It's the culmination here as Paul is describing the will of God. Now, to be clear, Paul is not desiring to enter into some debate regarding the will of God. He's he's not desiring to talk about things that fall under the sovereign control of God as he runs the universe and everything in it, including the fallen state of man and sin and evil. He's not getting into that here. He's not debating that sin and evil happen and that God in his sovereignty allows them to happen. What he's making clear here is that God wants something. God wants something. He wants something that is opposite for his children. In fact, he commands the opposite for his children. He commands them to pursue the path of the perfect. He commands them to pursue the path of the ultimate. He commands them, Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. As Paul's laying out this case for transformation, he's also laying out the path for the application of the will of God for life. In other words, do what God wants. And why does God want this? Why does God want this? Because he's the creator. And as the creator, as the sustainer of all things, he has searched and known the depths and the details of everything, right? There is nothing hidden from God's sight. And, and he has made and he has chosen the perfect to be his standard. That which has nothing greater than itself, nothing more fulfilling, nothing that could bring greater joy, nothing that could give greater peace, nothing that could satisfy more completely, that is what God wants. That is what delights him. We saw in those couple of Proverbs that we read that he takes a stance on the things that don't delight him. Pretty severe stance sometimes. But that's what delights him. That's where, he, where, where his contentment lies. Now I know we're saying that contentment almost like we would be content. But again, God's content because of who he is. That, that's where his peace resides. That's where his love is manifested. It's why God is perfect. So Jesus said that is the standard. The standard is perfect. Matthew 5. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that scripture has been used by bullies spiritually for a long time. So before anyone gets the idea that this is some type of moralism or worse yet, some type of legalism, let me tell you there is only one way in which you can even pursue this. 
And, and Paul gave it at the beginning of the passage. Paul starts it off by calling on and recognizing the mercies of God. One author said it like this, all of Romans 12 is based on the first 11 chapters of Romans, and those chapters are about God's mercy in Christ. This is what saves us in spite of our imperfection. Romans 6 and 7 make it plain that this imperfection continues into our Christian lives. So the command of verse 2, that we do what is good, acceptable, and perfect, throws us back again on the mercies of God in Jesus and this mercy sends us back again to pursue perfect obedience, to do what God wants. No one can stand at the cross receiving mercy and be casual about the will of God, what God wants. The cross compels us with great gratitude and hope toward that end. So this is what we find all throughout Scripture, that in, in the perfection of God and His knowing of all things, what is best, what is worst, what leads to life and what leads to death, He speaks and tells people what He wants. The perfect example is one of my favorite passages, kind of a life verse that I have had for many years. It's found in Micah. Michael was a contemporary prophet of Isaiah and Hosea, and he prophesied during the years surrounding the fall of Israel to the Assyrian Empire, 700 or so years before Christ. And during this period, Israel was kind of imploding because of all the evil that was uh, going on and the unfaithfulness of their leadership. Judah was on a roller coaster going from the highs of being in God's plan and doing exactly what God desired in one generation to the depths of the despair of the other generation. And much of Micah's writing revolved around two significant predictions, the one of judgment on Israel and Judah and the one of restoration of God's people in his new kingdom. The judgment part brought fear, right? The restoration part brought hope. And, and these two ideas wrapped up in the final parts of Micah's prophecy. It's kind of a courtroom type scene in, in which God's people stand trial before their creator for turning away from him and from others. And, and in this sequence, God reminds the people of his good work on their behalf and how he cared for them. And, and even when they didn't care for themselves. Okay, so that's Micah. But it's right in that part of that, that, that study there, that, that, that courtroom scene there, that we find the verse that I'm talking about. This is what Micah says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does he want? What is his will for you? But... To do justice, to love kindness, other versions say mercy, and to walk humbly with, some versions before, your God. It was God speaking to people and telling them very plainly, this is what I want. 
Now, Jeremiah kind of defines that first do justice thing because many people have taken this and, and they've twisted it kind of out of the context and use it for many other issues related to justice. But this is what Jeremiah said. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. And do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood. Wow. Love kindness is defined by one scholar as, as saying this. And you can tell it's a, it's a relic. Never working ill to another. Maybe best seen in Jesus' story of the good Samaritan. Walk humbly is being so overwhelmed by who God is because of the fellowship that you have with him that your soul is fed by only what God has provided. I will not walk in an arrogant way. I will be humble before God. Whatever he provides, that's all I need. Now, this was said just short of about 3,000 years ago. So here's my question. How different would the world be today if the people who were hearing that statement would have given God what he wants? They would have done what God wanted done. How different would justice look today? How much kindness would there be today? What would the scale be of pride? Now, I know this is kind of a, a pie-in-the-sky question, right? But how about this? How different are things in the places, in, in the pockets of the world, where people actually do this? Where people do what is just? Where people do what is kind? Where people walk in humility before God so they do not walk in pride toward each other. We know these things should be happening in the communities of believers as they interact with each other and with the world, right? And, and we've seen it before because where we've seen it, we know what it's like. There's, there's peace that exists among these people, who practice this. There, there is joy that exists among people who practice this. There is contentment among people who practice this. There is satisfaction among people who practice this. Why? Because there is nothing greater than what God wants. And if God gets what he wants, it spills over onto us and that perfection starts to look like something. It looks like him. So what would happen if a group of people began to explore the riches of this truth? What if they began to search for the things God wants, and every time they find one in the Scriptures, they would actually do it? Now, those I listed from Micah are pretty general, right? How are you going to define whether someone is doing justice? How are you going to define whether someone is doing kindness? They're, it's a very general thing, maybe even a bit hard to, to nail down or, or to track, maybe. 
So what about looking at a few others that could and would make immediate impact in a group of people? And, and they would be easily seen. What happens when God gets what he wants from a husband? Now, again, this is not about moralism. This is not about legalism. This is about understanding that when we are filtering our life through the grid of what God desires, when God gets what he wants, we see the perfection of his plan coming to fruition in whatever it is. So what happens when God gets what he wants from a husband? Ephesians 5, familiar passage when we've studied husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So he gives this example of what Jesus has done and the sacrifice that he made and the giving that he, he did. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Can you imagine the impact on marriage relationships if this type of life were being lived by all husbands? And I'm not going to put it outside of this room or the people that are watching on the live stream. Let's talk about us. If, if our church was the example, every husband was the example. They were, they were going out of their way to love their wives more than even their own bodies. That's a sacrificial type love. That's, that's laying yourself down, your preferences, your desires, sacrificing for them, nourishing them. The word there is actually a maturing type thing, and, and some people might be offended by, you know, a, a man saying, well, I'm going to help my wife mature. But this is what it is. It's, it's helping them grow in Jesus, cherishing them, caring for, and paying great attention to. What would it look like if God gets what he wants from husbands? Would it testify to something greater than what people are used to seeing or used to experiencing. I believe it would. I believe it would. What happens when God gets what he wants from wives? Now, men, you got, you got hammered there for just a second. Ladies, this is not going to be a hammering, but it's the same thing, right? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Can you imagine the impact on marriage relationships if this type of life were being lived by all wives who are part of Hope Chapel? Now, three people just said, I'd like to re re draw, re withdraw my membership or whatever. I understand. But, but can you imagine if that was going on? 
that, that these wives were going out of their way to respect their husbands, counteracting the culture and, and the wedge that it has driven in marriages. And if they were to keep the roles of responsibility that God initiated intact and function the way God designed the relationship, honoring and building up, what would it look like if God gets what he wants? Now, I'm making this personal for a reason, because sometimes we can say this in an ethereal way. We can say it in some type of religious speak, but this gets down into our lives. It is something that we could tattoo on our forehead and on the back of our hands and paste on the refrigerator and put on our windshield, put on our phone as a reminder, and we could live this way, pursuing a path of the perfect. What happens when God gets what he wants from fathers and mothers? Proverbs 22 says they train up the children in the way that they should go. Deuteronomy 6 says they, they, they talk about it in their going and their coming and, 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 and when they're in the house and when they're rising up and when they're rising down, the illustration is given of the children of Israel and how they were supposed to raise their families in the fear and admonition of God. Ephesians 4 reminds fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Can you imagine the impact on families if this type of life were being lived by all parents? They were intentionally making, educating their children in the Word of God their mission. They were living in such a way as to make God and His mission the priority of the family's life. They practiced God-honoring discipline that reflected the heart of God for his children. They, they reflect his love in their words and deeds toward their children. What would it look like if God gets what he wants? Would it testify to something greater? Would it testify to an experience that, that people have not seen? Don't think I'm leaving the kids out. What happens when God gets what he wants from kids? Children. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Can you imagine the impact on other kids if this type of life were being lived out by all children, specifically talking to the ones that are part of this church, they were willing to walk in obedience no matter how difficult, choosing to obey what is right in the sight of God over what the culture tells them they have rights to, trusting that this is a better way honoring, valuing, prizing their parents by the life that they live with them. What would it look like if God gets what he wants? Would it testify to something greater? Would it testify to an experience that people have not seen? Would it testify to the fact that God's plan is greater 
Now, even as I read through this again, I'm going to ask the team to come back. We're going to finish up. You might have seen that I've been rushing a little bit. I'm seeing people go like this, like they're passing out. So, But even as I, I read through this again, I, I understand I understand the monumental task this is. To get all the husbands, the wives, the fathers, the mothers, the children living life as to what God wants. But then I was reminded of the parable of the lost sheep and the picture that it shows in the heavenlies when just one does what God desires. When one is found, when one turns toward him, when one is, is his, the rejoicing that takes place, the delight that becomes part of the heavenlies. So here's the question. Not should we be doing this, because it's pretty clear that we should, right? What would it look like if we did? I, I started listing out all of the things and maybe, maybe they'll just become topics for the next five months. I don't know. But I started listing out all of the things. If, what does God want in prayer? We know he doesn't want rote words being said over and over and over and just you know, saying the same thing without any feeling, any passion, any... Anything. We, we know that. But, but what does he want in prayer? Because there are some very specific things that God wants in prayer. What does God want in giving? 10%, Pastor Dave. Well, we all know better than that, right? But what does God want? And, and in prayer, what would it look like if God gets what he wants? In giving, what would it look like? What about serving? What about, what about preaching the word? What about discipleship? What about relationships? What about koinonia, the fellowship? What does God want in our fellowship? And what does it look like if he gets what he wants? I want to ask you to start, and I'm, I know I mentioned this last week, but this is really, I believe this is really important. If there was one area of your life where you could begin this process that you know God has made it very clear what he wants. You've, you've read it in his word. It's been reaffirmed to you in times of prayer with him. It keeps coming up in your devotionals, right? Somebody calls you and talks to you about it. If there was one area of life right now where this process could begin for you to do what God wants, what would it be? I'm not asking you to say it out loud, but I want you to think about it. 
Husbands, would it be something related to your wives? Wives, would it be something related to your husbands? Parents, would it be something related to your children? Children, would it be something related to your parents? Believers, would it be something related to what God wants in your relationship with your neighbors? Would it be related to what? What area of your life is God wanting you to want what he wants? Because there's no area of life where he's not wanting to cause you to pursue the perfect. For his delight, for his glory, and for our benefit, the joy and the contentment and the satisfaction and the peace. What does God want? As the team leads us in this last song, I want you to stand. And if you want to sing, that's fine. If you don't, I would like you to reflect on that area that I believe that the Lord is, by His Spirit, giving you insight into starting there. And I will tell you, it, do, it doesn't have to be anything apocalyptic or cataclysmic or earthquake-like because the simplest things of obedience is where God wants us first. Let's take some time to reflect.